okay, everyone, we've been in my comfort zone for reading a little too long. Time to get into something new, something that'll make me decidedly uncomfortable and sound like an idiot. Some French existentialism. Welcome to your favorite book. This week's guest is Susan Rubin, author of The Road Not Taken. Hi, Susan. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much. How are you? Doing as well as I can today. Um, I'm very excited to sit down and talk with you both about your new book as well as the topic of our discussion, your favorite book, All Men Are Mortal by Simone de Beauvoir. I Pardon my bad French. <laughs> she's, not, she's not here to criticize you, and I thought you did fine. <laughs> I appreciate that. And so before we get to the books, uh, Susan, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I have been writing for a very long time. I sent, I started out on clay tablets, you know, writing a very long <laughs> time ago. And then I moved into, I was one of the last people to have a residency at, as a playwright at the Los Angeles Theater Center, which was um, one of the most exciting because it was fashioned on the New York Public Theater. I was a resident artist there, and they produced my work for as long as they existed. Um, and I got very many world premieres there, which was an incredible gift. I went on from there and got a residency at Bootleg Theater, which is um, an equally wonderful but very different. The Los Angeles Theater Center was kind of was owned by the city of Los Angeles, so it had a lot more money and people and you know stuff. But Bootleg Theater was a, a really amazingly um, what do I want to say? Innovative, wild, crazy. A lot more like downtown New York theater, which I certainly mm -hmm. admire. So I've been very lucky to have residencies at those two places. So seven of my plays have have had world premieres there, and one at uh, Circle X Theater um, as it was closing down. It was mm -hmm. it was Tim Wright was leaving as artistic director, and ultimately because of COVID and a few other things that theater has closed. All theaters were closed down. So I had nine world premieres in LA. They were very well received. Um, it's a difficult thing to do a play in LA because the audiences are so geographically spread out. It's hard to get, even with, I got great reviews and lots of ovation, lot, not just ovation. I got a lot of, you know, awards and all of that stuff. And it was still difficult, but it was so exciting. Um, what I did alternately to that, and I did it almost like once a year alternately, I would write a documentary for um, Ms. Magazine's home organization. And those documentaries were, um, they were to go to women's organizations. That One of them went to the White House Commission on the Status of Women, which makes me very proud. That was on um, mm -hmm. campus rape, which is not funny. And no. um, I did documentaries alternating years to doing a world premiere. I would do a documentary and that's how I kept myself going. I also taught writing to at-risk kids, but, but for my writing, I did a play a year and then a documentary a year. And those things balanced out financially and, and in a certain way, emotionally, because the documentaries were hard. We were using UNICEF and news footage and um, 
we were writing about hard stuff. And so in my plays, I was able to, um, it's, you know, it's fun to do a play, except I was an unbearable actress when I acted in my own plays. I thought, how can you be so disgusting to yourself? You're the producer. But the documentaries were painful and the theater was not. Suddenly I said, well, I'm a writer and I'm going to go on writing. And I went back to my very original roots as a storyteller. Um, I was, as a kid, someone who sat at the lunch table, when I'm talking about six years old, and even kids who hated me would come sit at the lunch table with me because I told great stories at lunch. And as I um, look at the book I wrote, and which is my first book ever, I really, I needed to write. I needed desperately to write, and I had an idea in my head I realized later on that it was um, already, a, it was a book by Josephine Tay and I was stealing her idea because it was so incredibly smart. So I thought, okay, make this your own. And as soon as I did that, the characters um, in a strange way wrote the book and I sat and said, okay, well, I'll put that down for you and we'll see how mm -hmm. it works. And I got it published and it has been better for me than the other two experiences because it's... Uh, at this point in history, it's better to do something alone. You know, if I was trying to do a play right now, I'd be in big trouble. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to start with asking you questions there. There's just so much to unpack. I'm really interested in the idea of going from one creative medium to another. So going from something like writing documentaries and go, then going to plays and then moving on to books. And like you said, this is your first book. And so now that you've experienced all these different media, what's the creative process like? How does that differ? How does that stay the same? So for documentaries, you can't just decide um, oh, I think the character should fly off into the time-space continuum now. If the, if the character is Richard Nixon <laughs> and you're writing a documentary about Rick, uh, Richard Nixon and Watergate, you, you can't just decide, oh, that didn't happen, this happened. So, so documentaries were the most um, structured for me. And because the organization didn't want to shoot we didn't want to shoot um, footage, so we were relegated to something called necessary use doctrine, which is something that allows you to use up to 90 seconds of a news broadcast. Mm. So, for instance, I, I was piecing together Walter Cronkite making an announcement about what we were writing about, something we would be writing about, and after the Walter Cronkite announcement was on screen, then I would have to use the words that would segue us to the next piece of, of what I'm going to call stolen footage, although it wasn't, which would be the UNICEF footage of what he had been talking about. So if we were talking about um, Afghanistan, which we wrote about, um, I would segue, Walter Cronkite wasn't there then, but I would segue from the news broadcast announcement, the Taliban today, you know, took over this city, then I would have to to segue to this is what happened when when the Taliban took over the city and then I would be using UNICEF footage mm -hmm. and so the challenge there really was to make a paste job that was exciting and the better that was really a job for the editor in a certain way we we had some amazing editors who just put it together seamlessly and then um the challenge there was the narrator always. We, we're an organization that was based on a lot of 
stars, movie stars, because of, of who the organization is. So I'll go to theater. Theater is about creating a collaborative environment in which you, you as the writer, I was the writer and the co-producer along with LATC or bootleg, but it was really up to me to make everyone feel that they were being cared for as an artist. Um, that's important to me. Mm-hmm. Doing plays is is much more about discovery. You write a monologue for someone and then they do it and you realize, oh, mm, earth, it's too long, whatever you realize. Um, I really liked writing monologues, actually. And and that's a different process because it's collaborative. The documentary is not, you're collaborating with news footage and um, you do the best you can to tell the story fully, but you really, you're limited. The theater thing was not limited at all, except by what we could afford. You know, if, if I had wanted someone to fly through time and space, we would have had to rig flying and that's not so easy. So they're different creative forms. I liked them both. It's incredible how you're able to really look at all of these art forms individually, and you can definitely see the the merits of all of these art forms. But I guess when you come down to it, pure storytelling, pure writing is probably the, the freest of the three forms. It's my favorite. And, you know, I had forgotten that as a kid, I told a lot of stories. Um, I, I forgot. I, I just simply forgot. You're a storyteller. And actually... My very first production at LATC was a one-woman show. It was a story I wrote, and I was the actress. And as I mentioned before, I was a terrible uh, actress to work with, <laughs> even though it was my play. And I, I hated what I looked like in the picture. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was an actress. I I hate that picture. You've made me look entirely too fat. And then I would say, how how could they have made me look fat? That's what I look like. So, um, but storytelling is actually my soul form because um, I like a good dive into the subconscious. I don't write naturalism. Um, the documentaries were enough naturalism for me ever. I don't ever need to write again about you know the real toll of, of what goes on in the world. In a book, it just is easier for me to say, sit down at the desk and open the book and start to write. And for some reason, in this particular debut book I wrote, the characters really told me what to do. After, I think I mentioned to you, Mm -hmm. I had this idea. Someone said, what are you going to write about? And I said, I'm going to write about a woman who meets her twin sister and then kills her. So I thought I'd write a mystery story. And then I said to myself, no, Josephine Tay wrote that book. It's called Brat and you can't do that. So, but I did have the idea that somewhere I wanted a woman to meet her twin. Um, in this case, it turned out to be in, in no way her sister, and but it was definitely a woman who looked exactly like her and who became her mentor <laughs> on her journey through time and space. So I kept the idea, but I let Josephine Tay have her novel because it's a wonderful, wonderful book, Brat Farrar. But I didn't think I should try to rewrite it, you know, and stick my name on it. So storytelling for me is um, the easiest because once I decide, even if I just say to you, you know, I think my next book is going to be about somebody who steals their mother's purse and then they find a gun in it. Even if I just say that much and the book has nothing to do with that, um, I've started. That that starts the process for me. Does, is that, does that make sense? 
that makes a lot of sense. And I like a lot of what you're bringing up with, with your book in general. And so normally I ask my uh, interviewees, like, can you tell us a little bit about your book? Can you summarize it for us? And I think you did so beautifully here. I mean, it is really a journey of identity, but also a journey through time and space. And I found it really interesting that you chose All Men Are Mortal as your favorite book, because I found a lot of parallels between your story and that story. And I, I thought it was really interesting that both of these stories sort of feature a character moving through time and meeting, you know, various prominent historical figures. And so I want to ask, did you consider All Men Are Mortal a literary influence of sorts? Oh, yeah. I wrote a play after after I read All Men Are Mortal, I wrote a play called Immortality. And um, it was based on All Men Are Mortal because I was so captivated by the story and, and how Simone, you know, people think of Simone de Beauvoir, if they know who she is, as a kind of um, didactic, uh, you know, someone who tells you there are 10 mm-hmm. men for every five women who blah, blah, blah. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And I never read The Second Sex. She's written some of the best novels I've ever read. And of all of them, All Men Are Mortal is the most magical because mm-hmm. the, the man in it is immortal. And he tells her, of history in Europe from his own life experience. And she's an actress. The The parallel mm-hmm. also, aside from the fact that I wrote a play based on it, which was very, very exciting to do because I loved, I loved the book so much that I said, how would this translate? And I actually made the play in part very, very funny because she was an actress and I was able to set up um, an artificial Broadway show in which uh, I was able to say some stuff I feel about what Broadway was moving towards at that point, which was kind of crazy, nonsensical stuff instead of the Broadway, you know, of Mm -hmm. uh, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. Uh, It was really moving towards musical, silly stuff. So, uh, so I could write musical, silly stuff and make it really funny. And then this immortal man comes on board and takes over the lead role and it becomes very different. So I loved it for that. But what I loved about All Men Are Mortal that influenced me literarily was that um, her female protagonist and my female protagonist are, are not necessarily women that you would think an audience would like at the beginning. You know what I mean? You do know what I mean. In, in the case of her, you never really grow to like her. You grow to feel sorry for her because she's an absolute jerk. She's First of all, she is the uh, quintessential actress pain in the neck. Am I? Should I tell the audience a little bit about All Men Are Mortal, or will you? I'll provide a brief summary for everyone who's listening. I think we've told us a little bit, I've told you all a little bit about this book, but essentially this book is a blend of history, philosophy, and fiction. We're introduced to um, an actress, Regina, who we've been discussing Um, Regina is a self-obsessed character. She's young, self-obsessed, and a successful actress, an up-and-comer. And she runs across a man named Raymond Fosca, who is an immortal man. He has been alive for over 500 years. And throughout this book, we're thrown into Fosca's complicated story, how he's sort of interwoven with the entire history of Europe. And then along the way, we're sort of led to believe in um, what the meaning of life really is when there is unlimited time. And so 
it was on a book unlike something I've ever read before. I've never really read anything like this. Like you said, I only knew uh, Simone de Beauvoir for The Second Sex, which I haven't read either. I just knew she was an existentialist of sorts, and I was never any good at philosophy. So the the thing about um, the the couple, Count Fosca is actually based on a French figure named the Count de Saint-Germain, and, the, and there's a French myth um, that he walks a- along the River Seine late at night, that he's still, obviously, if he was immortal, he's still alive, and um, and he w- he's a real mythic figure in France. I don't know how many people, you know, believe it, but... Um, she wrote it based on the myth of the Count of Saint-Germain. I wrote it based on, can you take a, a protagonist who is on the face of it, not the most um, generous, her, her character is an absolute jerk. The, the woman is opportunistic and cruel to him. And then in the end, she learns the meaning of life. I took a character who was empty and very, very smart. My, I think my protagonist is very, very smart and had no idea what she was doing on this planet. And I tried to um, make the story about her figuring out what the meaning of her life was by being shown by a group of immortal people, because immortal is, is important to the process I was using. She's shown by a group of immortal people what the possibilities are for life in this universe, not necessarily on this planet. And then they ask her to evaluate the planet's value for um, every thousand years or so. They ask a person, and and Mm -hmm. I don't know these people because they're immortal and they don't exist, but they do exist in my mind. They ask her in the end to write um, a legal argument for whether this planet is Mm. worth the energy it takes because it's an energy, you know, drinking planet. If you could end this planet with with nobody being pained or knowing it was coming and it was going to happen really fast, would you do that? And I I found my character, who is, as I say, very empty at the beginning. At the beginning of the book, she's a suburban housewife. There's nothing wrong with that. But she's a particularly, um, she's very smart and she Mm -hmm. hasn't used any of her brain to figure out how to make a contribution to the planet. And that's really important to me is that while you're here, make it better for people. Certainly don't make it worse, but if you can, make it better for people because this is a hard planet. I don't want to see the planet disintegrate and everybody miserable, but if you, if, it, if we continue to be cruel to each other, and that's what my character found out that she taught me because I had no idea what her judgment would be. And, and she and I had a little dispute I didn't argue with my, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not ready for a straitjacket. I'm not arguing with my character yet. I'm in quarantine much longer. I make no promise, but she felt a little more positive um, that if people could stop being cruel, then we could fix every problem on the planet. I, I feel like that would be true, mm-hmm. but I'm not putting any money on getting rid of cruelty. I have gotten rid of cruelty inside myself. That's what I can say. That became thematic for my protagonist to say she got she did get we gave each other mm-hmm. stuff she gave me um what why why does it matter what I'm doing here I'm here and I gave her it matters what you're doing here because we all 
need to make a contribution. And she also becomes best friends with my favorite painter in the world, Vincent van Gogh. And so I got to do some really fun stuff for myself with, I've always had a fantasy about walking into Mm -hmm. a museum and, and going up to one of van Gogh's paintings, like the bedroom at Arles and just walking into the painting. And she does that. And, um, so I indulged a lot of my own fantasy life about, would you like to have dinner with Vincent van Gogh and sit and talk to him about, uh, they don't talk much about art. He has no idea in my book that he becomes famous. He's still, he didn't sell a painting until his brother bought one painting from him before he died. And as I was writing the book, a huge tome came out about the fact that van Gogh probably didn't commit suicide. He was probably killed accidentally by two little two little teenage boys. So the book had a lot of stuff in it that really mattered to me. But the main thing that mattered to me was that my protagonist taught me that it's your human spirit that makes the difference in the world. And you've got to find out a way to activate your human spirit for good. That's It's so interesting, especially putting this in the context of your book, and then thinking about how that's portrayed in All Men Are Mortal, because you can make the argument that throughout history, Fosca probably causes more problems than he fixes. Yeah. I'm curious to know, before we get into talking about my personal opinions of this book, I'm curious to know, when, where were you in your life when you first read this book? Oh, dear. Okay. You really want to know? My mother was dying. I had read a lot of Simone de Beauvoir novels, but all of them are very naturalistic, except for All Men Are Mortal. But I was reading this book because mortality had become a big issue to me because my mother was dying. And she was not, it was not the tragic death of a 40 year old. She was an older woman, but it was my mother. Mm -hmm. And I I wrote, uh, I read All Men Are Mortal and I thought, oh, okay. I can write a play about immortality and she'll stay alive. So of course, this is how this happens. This is theater for you. So I wrote the play um, based on All Men Are Mortal. It was pretty darn close in philosophical terms to All Men Are Mortal. And opening weekend, my mother died. So um, you can laugh. It's okay. That was my, that's my family. I'm telling you, you're asking me, I read the book. I read All Men Are Mortal when my mother was dying. And I thought, well, not everyone dies. I mean, Mm -hmm. some people... Count Fosca finds, I know you know this, he has a wizard who makes him a potion. He's underwater about to be killed by an enemy because he's a warrior. And he's about to be killed by an enemy when um, his wizard comes up to him and says, drink this. And he doesn't know what it is. And he drinks it. And suddenly he's immortal. Yep. And um, it's him and a little mouse. Yeah. It's just amazing to me what that did for me. So I thought, oh, well, not everybody has to die. And I tried really hard while I was reading All Men Are Mortal um, to take in. Some people are immortal, which is probably not true. But I needed Mm -hmm. to get through losing my mom because um, she was in New York and I was here. And I flew back for one week of every month and spent a week with her. And that didn't do any, you know, all that did was make her feel bad because I would leave. Mm. I lived in California. Yeah. So the the book and then the play was very helpful to me in, in making up the idea that maybe she wouldn't die. That's right. Right. 
So this is a very cathartic experience for you being able to take this media, connect it to your life, create something out of it to at least help you process the tragedy you were going through. Yes. And also because I don't have any, um, I don't have a belief. I wasn't raised with a religious belief system about death. I've also read a lot of mythology about different mythological beliefs about what happens to the human body or the human spirit. And those have been helpful mm-hmm. to me too. Um, you know, not, not necessarily reincarnation, but um, that your soul goes on. That ma- neither matter nor spirit can be created nor destroyed was helpful to me. And the book, All Men Are Mortal, she so clearly grasped that this woman, the actress in All Men Are Mortal, mm-hmm. her overarching feeling is if this immortal man remembers me as the most beautiful, talented actress he's ever seen in his life, then I am immortal, at least to that degree. It is very actressy. And I thought de Beauvoir wrote it. It's interesting because everyone thinks of her as this kind of rabid feminist, and she doesn't like women particularly. I've read all of her books. She she sees the contradictions in, in, in human beings, and she doesn't favor she favors who she likes, but um, this particular actress was really an opportunist and because uh, she wants to be remembered for all time. She wants to be immortal. And it, it was very exciting to me. And so, as I said, I wrote it as a play to keep my mother alive and she died opening weekend. And that's, you know. I mean, back then it probably felt quite cruel. Well, you know, the thing was she insisted on coming to, she lived in New York and I had a friend who was a graduate student living with her because she, I didn't want to take her out of her home, nor would I ever mm-hmm. take anyone out of their home. And he lived with her and he was an actor and he called me and said, you know, your mom wants to come out for opening weekend of immortality and I don't think she's going to survive. And mm-hmm. I called her and said, please, 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 I'll come home the day we you know, the day after opening. And she said, no, I'm coming. And I said, I'm afraid. I'm really afraid you're going to come here and die. And she said, I'm not going to die alone in New York. That's out. So she came here. And the truth was, I had a nicer doctor than she did. Cedars gave her a private, you know, she died overlooking the Hollywood Hills. And in Mm -hmm. that way, it was really good for her and not so great for me. Mm -hmm. But if I had again, I would do it again because of what I learned in my book, which is you have to have enough human spirit to learn how to overcome cruelty. It would have been cruel to say to her, you can't come here. You'll ruin my opening. How do you say that to someone who knows that they're facing death? So I let her come. I'm sorry. Was that like the worst story you've ever heard in your life? No, that was incredible because it, it it made me wonder. This book, this book was very interesting to me, but it's not the book I would think of when someone tells me this is their favorite book. So I was genuinely curious about what the circumstances were that brought you to this, and this all st- comes together. And returning to the book itself, I find it really interesting that you mentioned you've read uh, De Beauvoir's other works, and she doesn't like women. But I find it really interesting that all the women in this book are far more interesting than all the men in this book. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have we have Regina, our actress, who, you know, as we've mentioned, she might be one of the most unlikable characters ever, but she was very engaging to read about. She was very interesting. And her 
you know, fear of irrelevancy as someone around her age. I, I identify with that when you're you're young and you you think you'll live forever and you've not really grasped the concept of dying and of being forgotten. And so that definitely resonated. And then as we go into Fosca's story, we meet some of the other women that he's known, that he's loved. The, the book is at its best when it's talking about the personal relationship. So Beatrice, um, I believe her name is Marianne, who he marries, um, all these different characters. The women just come alive on the page. And Fosca himself is not the most interesting character. So <laughs> I, I think that's true. She can... She can see the complexity of women. Um, she, I guess I should, I should restate, not that she doesn't like women, although I don't think she does particularly, but you can, be, you can be a feminist and not like women. You can want women to change. Regina is unbelievably selfish and very cruel to Fosca when she first, when he first, I, I believe that the way he proves to her that he's immortal is that he slits his throat in front of her. And she thinks, oh, God, and then his throat heals in about 45 seconds. And he yeah. says, I wasn't kidding. I'm immortal. So that's interesting. That part of him is interesting. But basically, he's a warrior and a king. And um, he, he tells the history of Europe through the history of war. And the stuff about him that makes me, that made me, it, it, I found exciting was all the women you mentioned were women that, as he says, I fell in love with one woman after another, century after century. I had children that I really deeply loved. And because I'm immortal and they're not, I watched them all age and die. And I never aged and I never got sick and I never died. And so I find that I'm sympathetic to him for that. I've lost, you know, for the number of people I've lost already in my life. I know it's really, really hard. Um, I think he decides by the time he gets to know Regina that it's not worth it to go through it again. Not, not, not for her. And that's really, I'm not going to ruin it for people. Uh, when he decides it's not worth it, that very last sentence he uses, which I will not use. Um, I write something very similar in, in the last sentence of my book, but it's intended to be joyous. Um, um, it's intended to say, and, and so we go on. And, and so life goes on. But yeah, he's he's lost so many people that he loved that he doesn't want to love anybody anymore. And he begins to love her and then realize who she is. And that's what I mean about Du Beauvoir being very stark and very real about who that woman is. She plays, you know, the the heroine in all of her plays. Like she she can't be second fiddle to anyone. And her relationships with others is she'll never love anyone more than herself. Like she looks for people that just adore her the way she wants to be adored. It, I just find it so interesting that Fosca also doesn't have the capability to love anymore. And I think that one of the things I find most compelling about this book is the idea that the, the connection de Beauvoir makes between love and mortality, how you can't really love if nothing's on the line for you. And I thought that was such a beautiful, I know Beatrice brought it up first, and then centuries later, it was brought up by Marianne. And I thought it was just a, a beautiful concept. The, those sections of the book, I, I basically categorized this book in terms of my enjoyment, is I enjoyed the beginning, I enjoyed the ending. And in the middle of it, I was just like, this is a lot in the middle. <laughs> But the beginning is, I mean, the beginning you see her 
at the end, is it a tour of Twelfth Night? Yes, it is. They're doing a tour of the French countryside doing Twelfth Night. And it, the book opens with her taking her bows for the closing night. And she's watching the audience to see if they like her co-star, the woman co-star, as much as her. And she's absolutely mm-hmm. destroyed. As I said, I am a pain in the neck actress. And I understand that actresses want to be everyone's favorite, but she was really bad. She, she would say, well, if they like her, then there's no point in them liking me, which is a little over the top. You can learn to be an, I did learn. You can be an actress and say, great, they loved everybody. And some people like me the best and some people like her the best. This um, Du Beauvoir's character was not capable of yep. that kind of generosity. And, and in a certain way, Fosca wasn't either because he had, just to be colloquial, he had been there and done that for hundreds of years. He had had many, many, many children that he seemed to deeply love. And then how did he explain to them that they're aging and he's not? Because he just didn't age. From what I understand, my my read of the book is that he stayed an incredibly handsome 40-ish year old man, or maybe even younger, because it was at a time when people didn't live it was fascinating to me. I, I agree with you in terms of a read. If I was going to say to someone, read this, that the whole center section, unless you're interested in the history of how Europe developed, read the front, read the first 50 pages and the last 50 pages. Um, That's what I was thinking, like in terms of pure literature. So usually in the podcast, I come to things with a very craft centered perspective. And the whole time finishing this book, I was thinking, if this was a novella, you know, a, a tight 150 pages, it would probably be one of the best things I've ever read. And then the middle of it just sagged in the middle so much for me. And I, I'm someone who enjoys history, but I think the history really only came alive to me when he started making personal connections. And so much of this book, you know, he's understandably afraid to, he doesn't make that many connections. And so you're left dealing with endless wars and diplomacy and some horrific racism and all sorts of stuff like that. So I think what was uh, to, to me in terms of discussing it as literature, if what she wanted to do was give people a sense of how Europe came into being as different, you know, this country versus that country versus um, to discuss the history of Europe, if someone said to me, I- I've got to have my college students understand the history of Europe, then I would say, well, they'll learn that in this book. If you approached it that way, you could say it's a very enticing love story and you will learn the history of Europe. If you don't want that part of it, then as I said, first 50 pages, last 50 pages, and you've got a story that's so magical. And what I liked about it was that I, I didn't realize this until just now, which means I maybe I'm stupid, but um, Mm -hmm. I had been writing so much in documentaries that was so, first of all, historical, because we we never wrote about the year we were living in. Everything we did had history, history, can you pronounce it, sweetie? Try again, had history to it. And so you'd have to say, um, Richard Nixon got that haircut because someone told him he'd look better if he got a haircut like that. And so there was always history in it. And, and I already had done that. And I thought what she did with it was unbelievably freeing rather than, but she also, 
didn't have to hit marks. You know what I mean? She didn't have to say, this will be ready for the meeting of this group with that group to discuss this issue politically in a very specific way and, and, and never say the wrong, I could never say certain things. And, and I found her freedom to say, this is what happened in Europe. I found that fascinating that she could still, I think I mm. fell a little more for the love story maybe than you did because it kept me going the whole time that he was so in love with so many, uh, not that he was a gad about, he wasn't a playboy. No, he really wasn't. He, he really felt for a lot of these women. And I, I did really enjoy that. Those love stories did keep me going through the book. Um, I, I just think like from an editor's perspective, it's like, I would have trimmed a little bit here and there, but focused more on the love stories, sort of representing Europe as sort of this grand love story would have been very interesting. But overall, I do think I gained a lot reading this book. I mean, this is a book that never would have been on my radar otherwise. I didn't even know de Beauvoir wrote novels. I knew her for The Second Sex and for being a grouchy existentialist, and that was about it. <laughs> Did you say a grouchy existentialist? A grouchy existentialist. <laughs> well, she was grouchy because nobody knows she wrote all these books. And, you know, her boyfriend, Sartre, he wrote one little play. It's a lovely little play. The concept is wonderful that everyone's in hell because hell is other people. But I just told you what No Exit is about. It's that hell is other people. And that's that's all he wrote. And so many people know him and so few people know about her fiction. I worked in a I worked in Ms. Magazine and nobody knew she had written fiction. And it's and she won, you know, the Grand Prix de Cour and all this other stuff. In France, they knew. And when I read All Men Are Mortal, it was a re they had finally reissued. But but I will tell you for yourself and for your audience's self, she is one of the most amazing novelists. If this book was not your uh Tosta Cafe, I'll say it in French. Um, she wrote a book called The Mandarins, which is the most incredible description of post-World War II French existentialists and mm -hmm. um, the existential movement was filled with Vichy, uh, what do you call them, traitors, with tra mm -hmm. with people you think of as being, oh, they were part of the existential movement, but they were also part of the German underground in France. And it's really, really interesting. And she writes those books much more. Everybody's drinking all the time and they're taking pills and, you know, they're going to their psychiatrist mm -hmm. and um, it's a much more contemporary take on a novel. All Men Are Mortal is sort of like a meditation for me on mortality and what makes life endurable um, and, and important. And um, her other novels are much more standard brilliant literary fare so you know if you ever want to read another one read the mandarins because it will it, it is historically valid but but as i said she's up against jean-paul sartre who everybody everyone knows him and it's like i've heard of no exit and it's right it's a shame that in history we still undervalue the contributions of women and they have to overperform to match up to the reputations of men it's very, it's definitely unfortunate. And I'm glad you recommended some of her other books because normally I like to close out my episodes um, by asking my guests for further recommendations. And so we have the Mandarins, we have some of other 
of de Beauvoir's novels to look into. We certainly have your book, which at the end, I want you to let us know where we can find your book. Um, But I usually try to offer for everyone listening a, a book recommendation of my own based on my read of this. What's another read I would recommend? And I ended up thinking, this is a first for the podcast. I ended up thinking of not a book, but a song. Wow. Okay. There, there is a song which came out a few years ago um, by Jason Isbell. Jason Isbell is a modern country artist. He sings a lot of country music, but it's not the kind of country you'll find on the radio. And he has a song called If We Were Vampires. <laughs> and it is a beautiful little love song on the, and it captures that idea we were talking about how you need mortality for love to exist. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the premise of the song there. There's a line in the song that I think of that says, maybe time running out is a gift. And he meditates and says, you know, if we were vampires, I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand. Like what would love be? It's a, it's a popular song. I mean, I it was on the radio for a fair bit when it came out, but it's the first that it made me, and it's one of my favorite songs ever made. So it was wonderful to think of it in relation to a book like this. So for all my listeners, maybe country music is not your cup of tea. I think you'll like this song. Wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Did you want me to tell you a couple of her other books that I would recommend one over the other? Sure. Give us a couple of titles. I would love that. When Things of the Spirit Come First is a book she wrote about a woman who has a son who's very materialistic and the woman is, you know, standard materialistic. She's a middle-class woman, but money is not the only thing that matters. And she finds her son and, and her son's wife unbearably materialistic. And she sort of argues with herself throughout the book about how can you feel this way? He's your son. How can you feel this way about him? And she just can't stand his values. I found it very interesting to mm-hmm. see a, any, any mother go through. I mean, lots of mothers don't like their children, but um, this was really smart. And then She Came to Stay is a almost autobiographical true story of when she and Jean-Paul Sartre took up with a provincial girl. Yeah, I saw that on her Wikipedia page and I was like, what? Well, here's the thing about it that's so interesting. I mean, the book is interesting, um, for sure. They both want her, in the beginning, to join their relationship as a kind of, uh, she's a provincial girl, she doesn't know anything, she's not literate, and they think it'll be interesting to teach her, you know, about existentialism and literature. But But of course, it ends up being a sexual troika. And after a very short time, de Beauvoir, and it pretty much is, de Beauvoir can't stand it anymore. And she wants the woman gone, but the woman has by then figured out, Hey, this is Paris. And I, you know, I'm smoking Galois and talking to these people. And this is fantastic. I'm never going back to the provinces. So de Beau, this is, a, she tells a, re- a really true story. Mm-hmm. De Beauvoir leaves and goes to Chicago where she has an affair with Nelson Algren, who's an American novelist. And then she goes back and decides she wants Sartre back and she wants him back to herself. And she does something at the end of the book. I'm not going to tell you. Spoiler alert. It is so strange to me. It would be like at the end of this conversation, if you said to me, I really don't like you. I just don't like you at all. 
and I don't know what you're doing on my podcast, and I'm not going to broadcast it, slam. It, it, it's as shocking as that, what she does at the end mm-hmm. of the book, because it's not, you know, she's a very smart woman, Simone de Beauvoir, and she could have ended the book in a myriad of different ways. And when she ended it the way she ended it, I thought, oh, you've really, you lost your marbles over this one. So it was interesting to see her lose control emotionally of the situation and still be able to tell the ending. I'm, it's certainly, well, if, if you read it, you'd have to give her an A. You'd have to say, oh, well, that's well written. But you'd also say, maybe time for a nice drink and a hamburger and relax a little bit. So you give her an A and then you're like, see me after class. Like, Yes, we're going to talk after class. I have a therapist I'm going to recommend to you. And it was strange because I read, I've read all of her books. The Mandarins, which is, as I said, it's about Jean-Paul Sartre and her and all of the people who were, whose names currently leave me that were part of, I'm sorry, Camus and all those people. And that sounds so tedious, possibly, but they're very interesting because they're very um, neurotic and they've just come out of World War II, and some of them have sided with the Nazis, and and the others don't know that. So it really has a kind of unraveling. She's she's very smart, and um, I have learned so much today. I cannot thank you enough for having me read this book. Like you know, this whole podcast, I started it to get out of my literary comfort zone. I certainly did that with this book, and I'm very glad to have read it. And um, Susan, if everyone out there wants to find your book that you described for us earlier in the episode, where can we find your book? You can find The Road Not Taken and please buy my book, not the Robert Frost book of the same name (laughs) because he doesn't really really care if you buy the book. It's on Amazon Mm -hmm. for for sure. If you would like to... um, Give your business to a local bookstore. It is at skylight.com. Um, I don't know how much, of your audi- how much of your audience is in Los Angeles. I think a fair amount. Okay. So skylight.com is a bookstore in Los Angeles that could really, it's a ind- really good independent bookstore or Amazon. I, I would go to Amazon or I-, I would ask that if people can do it, even if you're not in Los Angeles, give the, the, um, the, website for Skylight Skylight Books is skylight.com. The book is called The Road Not Taken. We did a um, Zoom thing there a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. It was very exciting. And I'm trying to get people to support, you know, independent booksellers because soon, uh, I don't know what's happening. It seems like the publishing industry is uh, cratering a little bit. So It is, it is. And if there's something I'm passionate about, it is supporting your local indie. And so many of them are willing to ship. So I will definitely include the links to both Amazon as well as Skylight Books in the show notes. You'll be able to have all the links to that. Okay, thank you so much. That So that's where to reach it. Wonderful. Susan, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the Your Favorite Book podcast. And I learned so much today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate your show and thank you.